Welcome to Talking About Midlife, where we talk about life living in a female body in our midlife. We talk about health, love, relationships, our inner world, aging, death, motherhood, and what it means to be a human in this time in the world. I am Kelly Sterling, and I hope you enjoy listening to these stories that I'm sharing. Hi everyone, thanks for listening today. Today I have my friend and colleague Deborah Pascoe here to have a chat about midlife, about adult development, about how we grow leaders. How can we do a better job of growing leaders in organisations so that they can take a broader view of their decisions that they make that impact all the different parts of the world. Deb is a director of Phrenesis Foundation, which is a boutique consultancy that focuses on strategy, leadership and cultural development in organisations. Hi, Deb. Hey, Thanks Kelly. for being here. Thank you so much for asking me. I feel honoured and privileged and excited to be having a chat with you <laughs> in this way. You're so welcome. I thought it was time to explore my adult development past and, and start <laughs> talking about um this because when you and I have talked, you know, there's always everything overlaps all the time and I continue to integrate all the systems and complexity theory into my work, um, even though I probably have sort of moved towards working in the trauma space a little bit more, which I love dearly and you know, obviously still coaching people. But I really wanted to, yeah, to start to have some conversations around this because I do with people I coach I see so much the impact of their work environment on their nervous system and you know when they're dysregulated how that impacts on them making good choices in the workplace Mm -hmm. so it's sort of outside in and inside out really isn't it yeah and you know you and I can go down so many different rabbit warrens can't we we haven't known each other that long but I feel like yeah. we've known each other forever because we just have these deliciously exploratory dialogues that can go anywhere. <laughs> Absolutely. So look out. Well, yeah. I don't know what's going to happen in this Fasten your seatbelt, listeners. <laughs> exactly. So, so Deb, tell us a little bit about the work that you do but also the path that has sort of brought you to where you are now. Yeah, maybe I'll start with um, with that. So... Decades ago, I my first sort of real proper job was as a marketing assistant with with, with um, what was then ICI mm-hmm. uh, and is now Orica. And um, back then, ICI um, had many more businesses than it does now, and many more employees. So it was about ten thousand people, and it was owned by the the mothership in the UK, ICI in the UK. And I came in as a junior marketing assistant, and um, had a pretty good boss who allowed me to uh, to take on more and more of what he was doing. So had a great career trajectory, moved up from marketing assistant to product manager, um, commercial manager, and by the end I was a senior leader, um, a business unit manager looking after one of the plants at Botany. So I had a great um, 10-year career there and learned a lot about leadership by not being very good at it. 
Yeah. And a lot of the stuff that we were put through in the organisation, they were kind of ahead of their time in terms of leadership development. Mm -hmm. So we went on some, you know, fantastic um, programs and some of that stuff I still use in my practice today. Um, I got to the 10-year mark and I um, leapt out of running a business to become an internal consultant on helping the organisation move forward with regard to um, business development and um, best practice um, sort of the, the next wave that came out of TQM and total quality management, business improvement stuff. I did that for about 18 months and then thought to myself, you know, I'm I'm quite happy, but I'm not really happy. And I didn't know what it would take to make me really happy. So my husband and I didn't have kids. I had 10 years of super and I thought I'm just going to stop and see what the world will do with me. So um, I resigned. And uh, I'd given myself about 12 months from resigning in my head to formal resignation because there were some things I wanted to, to finish off and see through. And then I just stopped for a little while and um, did macrobiotic cooking and yoga and meditation. Mm -hmm. And after about six weeks, I, um, I went to see um, a counsellor that I'd had a long-term relationship with. And um, this was like having a performance management when you're um, session when you're expecting to get the highest grade and you get the lowest grade, you know. Because uh -huh. I said to her, she said, so what are you here for, Deborah? And I said, well, I want to explore a bit more meditation. You know, I know that you're really spiritual and I want to explore that a bit and kind of delve into this. You know, life's really good. I'm doing all this. I'm doing all that. And um, I'm sort of rabbiting on like this. And she cuts me off and she says, excuse me, Deborah, what's all this spiritual bullshit about? You are one of the most purposeful people I know. And right now, you have no purpose. And I don't know how you feel about that, but it scares the shit out of me. <laughs> <laughs> it was one of those whacks that you get when yeah. you're leaving it, which was fantastic. And so what I did then is um, I decided to become a shiatsu therapist. I thought that was my purpose because um, this therapist was into all that sort of stuff as well. So I did my training for that and then partway through that ICI asked me to come back and do some um, coaching with some of their business improvement teams. So I sort of fell into consulting and partway through that gig I realised, geez, I can make a lot more money out of this than I can <laughs> doing shiatsu with my thumbs. <laughs> and I just realised that that was my love and that was my passion and this shiatsu stuff was helpful in terms of like reading energy in the room. You know, it sympathised yeah. me to that. So yeah. I don't, um, you know, I still loved my time um, as a student in Shiatsu and got so much from it in terms of my own personal development, but then sort of fell into consulting and I've been consulting ever since. So that's probably since about, uh, probably about 1988 I've been mm. consulting for. So, mm -hmm. oh God, I don't, I'm not going to, can you scrub that when you do the edits? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been consulting for several decades. <laughs> Um, and just uh, absolutely, absolutely loving it. You know, I um, I don't know that many people who say things that I say regularly, and that is I absolutely love my work. Sometimes I can't believe that I get paid to do this. Yeah. And I certainly have no intentions of retiring. I think that's a filthy word that I don't want to have anything to do with so you know I, I want to be doing this when I'm 85 and then maybe I'll slow down a bit yeah fantastic mm. so 
recently we were talking and you said to me, you know, I'm in, I feel like I'm in the prime of my life. We were talking about midlife and midlife transition and how, you know, I think there's some women that feel like their life is over, mm. right? Particularly when they're going through menopause, it can be a little mm. tricky. And, um, and then you said that to me, you know, I'm in my early 60s and I feel like I'm in the prime of my yeah. life. Like how, how is that? How do you experience that? How does that? Obviously, you're like super engaged in your work and you love yeah. doing that. But tell I us a little bit me, about that. I remember, so um, I, I remember a friend saying to me when I was in my 50s um, who works in health, you know, what you do in your 50s is setting yourself up for your 70s. Mm. And, you know, when you get to your 50s, that well, my experience of it was starting to think about getting older. Because it's kind of confronting your body starts. Your, your mortality is pushed right in your face. The forefront. Yeah, you know, yeah. Um, that was the decade of my parents' um, demise and and death. So it's it's you know it becomes quite confronting. So I am pretty sure that I'm fit and healthier now than I was at thirty. I was doing yeah. bad stuff at thirty. You know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Yeah. You know, yeah. I was staying up all night at ICI conferences, um, drinking and presenting. Some of some was well, some of my best work <laughs> the next morning, you know, and senior leader saying, Can we have a copy of your presentation? That was great. You know, um, really bad stuff, but you've got the benefit of youth on your side. Yeah. Um, so I know that I'm healthier now than I was in my 30s. And I just feel um but that I just feel really vital. Mm. I feel that I, I'm my, at my best intellectually. I feel that I'm at my best emotionally, spiritually, physically, mm. um, and and just lo- wanting to wring out every bit of juice from this life. Now, that doesn't mean that it's always, you know, happy clappy because it's mm. not. Mm. You know, life is um, is a struggle. Yeah. And um, we, um, I, I feel so fortunate that I'm, you know, part of a, a community where we can create, you know, oases of peace and beauty and bliss. But for most of us, and I'll I'll quote, um, not that I particularly like him, but I'll quote, um, I can't remember his name now, who said that life is a rat's nest of misery. And it is for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, so I never forget the privilege of the life that I have. And, um, you know, gratitude is a really big part of my my daily practice. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've had lots of struggles in my life. I've suffered from depression really, really badly, depression and anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, on the 26th of September, um, we're now at the 18th of September, the 26th, it'll be four years since I've had a depressive episode mm-hmm. and um, coming up to seven and a half years um, since I've had a drink. Right. Um, so, you know, some some big hurdles that, that, I've, um, that I've worked through. Yeah. Um, to, to to be in the point that the where I am now. And I honestly think that the best years of my existence lie ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, Deb. How how would you say your midlife transition was for you? Yeah, so I was probably in Singapore when that midlife stuff happened. So we moved there as a family when I was 48. Yeah. And left when I was 52. Yeah. So, you know, some of the hot flushes of menopause probably passed me by because we're all hot flushing all the friggin' time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God, <laughs> Working that makes... profusely or freezing cold from the um from the air, air con. 
Yeah. So, um, and I also think that I've been um, blessed with, uh, you know, a reasonably good genetic code. So I didn't, I, I haven't suffered some of the terrible um, menopausal symptoms that I hear other women suffering from. Yeah. So I didn't, um, I didn't need to do any um, drug therapy or alternative therapy to, to see me through. Um, I was probably um, um, a bit batshit crazy, but I think I've been that all my life. Um, yeah. and part of my regulation, my self-regulation these days is um, to make sure that I'm managing the peaks just as much as I manage the troughs of depression. Yeah. So um, whether that's a mild form of bipolar, I think the the psych that I see, the jury is a bit out on that. Yeah. Um, you know, when I'm when I'm in an elevated state, I don't do things like, you know, buy red sports cars and, and go crazy. But I do experience life. Um, um, and I'm, greedy, I'm greedy for it, yeah. And so I get excited, and then I think I'm <laughs> superwoman, and then I think I can do this, and I can do that, and I can do that, and I can do that. And a wise woman once said to me, um, you know, you can have everything you want, but not all at the same time. And, yeah. you know, an example of that for me is that when we were the year before we moved to Singapore, I was offered by a university here to do a PhD, and um, took that offer up, did a year of a PhD, and then the move came up to go to Singapore. And thankfully I said to myself, Deb, you can't do this. Your kids are four and eight. Yes. You can't go to Singapore and do a PhD. Like you're going to have to defer. And thank God that I did because the move there for me was such a graceless transition. I fell into very, very deep depression and anxiety um, and when I came out of that, I said, Deb, what are you thinking? Your kids are four and eight. You know, you had them later in life. Your 50s isn't the time to be doing a PhD. You're going to have to wait. Yeah. And I've waited. And now My you're son finishes year 12 this year. And next year I'm starting a PhD. Yeah, so fantastic. You can have everything you want, but not all at the same time. Yeah, we put so much pressure on ourselves. Sometimes I feel like we get in our own way because we put all these like we we should or we have to or we've got to do this and and there's a sense of urgency and as I've got older what I've realized is actually it's fine to slow right down and just enjoy everything and to be present to what I'm experiencing there's so much more richness in that and I ha I feel you know despite my health issues I've had in the last couple of years I feel better than I've felt for years Mm. and we just yeah like I feel like you I'm like God, I said to someone the other day like I'm in my sweet spot I feel like yeah, I'm in my sweet isn't spot. that lovely and I also wonder whether part of you being where you are and maybe where I'm being where I am is through adversity yeah you know um even though you know we talk about you know just being in the moment and being present for me I have to put discipline in my life around the things that really matter um, you know, for me, exercise is not a nice to do. It's a must to do. It has yeah. to be part. It has to take highest priority. Um, my sobriety has to take highest priority. Um, all those things that part of the discipline around those things is really, really important to living a life that's um, um, pretty ordinary, but also wonderful and extraordinary and um you know the best years of my existence lie ahead as I said yeah yeah no I, I get what you're saying and I, I think you know one thing I realized just with the trauma in this trauma space is the more work 
that I've done on my body, on my nervous system, is that, you know, you come back to sort of a kind of peaceful and quiet and kind of boring space Mm. and that actually boring is good (laughs) when it comes to, you know, the nervous system and just Mm -hmm. being in that kind of more regulated, yeah, like I'm going to the farmer's market this weekend or whatever, is actually a good thing. Yes. Um, There's so much joy in that in that simplicity, isn't there? There is. I, I don't and not know. having that sort of going on in the body. I'm moving yeah. my hands. And for me, the the deepest level of acceptance, whether that's um, you know cancer or depression or anxiety or whatever it is that um, the world throws at us, um, the deepest level of acceptance is appreciation. I think. Yeah. And you know, after my last bout of depression, I remember driving along. I was actually, you know, going to have a coffee with a colleague and I said to him, I can't tell you how good I feel and how appreciative I am of my depression because if I didn't have it, I wouldn't know how good it feels just to be alive. Yeah, I'm so with you on that. Yeah, it feels amazing, doesn't it? Yeah. It really does. I totally get what you're saying. Hey, let's let's kind of shift a little. So, so the leadership development work, particularly around complexity and helping people make better complex decisions. So this is the space that I've worked in for years, that you've worked in for years. Why do you think I'm just really curious and interested in, you know, the way that you talk about this. Why do you think this work is so important to develop people's capacity to think and to 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 be, to embody, right, to experience, mm-hmm. be able to cope with this increasing complexity? Why does it matter? Why is it important to the planet? You know, what's... Mm-hmm. what's um... That's a great question, Kelly. And, you know, if I start from sort of micro and go to macro Mm -hmm. one of the reasons that I've been passionate about leadership development for so long is that we spend a lot of time at work right Mm. um whether that's 40 50 60 sometimes more hours it's a big chunk of our lives and I am passionate about um having those workplaces be a little bit better because business can be brutal right it can be benevolent and brutal and it probably you know moves towards the brutal side more often than it does the benevolent side mm-hmm. um, and that's a function of leadership you know leaders have the biggest impact on what it's like for their people to come to work mm-hmm. you know um, and we call the experience of coming to work you know culture so if if organizations and this is the business case for leadership if organizations whatever they are want some form of results and we we measure that in different ways in you know um, listed companies it's EBIT and ROI and in not-for-profits it might be community engagement or customers Mm. or Mm. you know a church might be bums on seats whatever it is they're all organizations that are after something Mm. um, that I'll call results or performance the single biggest impact of results and performance is what's it like to work around here which is culture so up to 30% of the variance um, in results, you can directly track back with good, solid, hard data to culture, right? Mm-hmm. That number one. Stat number two is the biggest impact on culture is, no surprise, leadership. Mm. So up to 80% of the variance in culture, you can directly track back to leadership. 
which means in layman speak that your boss has the single biggest impact on what it's like for you to come to work and therefore your experience of the workplace and therefore um, results and profitability, how much discretionary effort you bring as an employee and your ideas and creativity and all that sort of stuff. So that's kind of one level of why Mm. I'm interested in this work and that means leaders making better decisions every day. The second level is, um, you know, what I want for myself and, and others is to reach our highest level of potential and work is a vehicle for that. It's not the only vehicle. Mm. Um, it can be unpaid work. It can be raising kids. It can be planting a rose garden. It can be bushwalking. But the fact that we spend a whole lot of time at work means that it's a vehicle that is is potentially Supports a that. to help yeah. us get there, right? Yeah. And our leadership plays such a big part of that. So why I want leaders who can help make the workplace a vehicle for self-development and growth, and therefore they need their own self-development and growth. And then the third level, which is the the bigger picture, is that I believe that the power in society rests these days in the business world. It doesn't rest in the church and it doesn't rest in the state, like it may have done in bygone eras. Mm. Um, You know, the government isn't going to save us. Business needs to influence the government to save us, to pass legislation, to do this, to do that. But the, the impetus has got to come from the business world, I think, because that's where the power and the money is. Yeah. And so, um, you know, that can go one of two ways. That power and money can go for, you know, a higher order purpose and the greater good, or it can go into, you know, more power and more money for, you know, the select few people. Mm-hmm. So I think that leaders more than ever need to be making decisions that will help save the planet rather than destroy it and we're probably at a tipping point and maybe we're we're even past past the tipping point Mm -hmm. and leaders are making those decisions in complexity that we've never experienced before Mm -hmm. so you you, some of your listeners may and you I'm, i'm sure will have heard of the acronym vuca conditions that are volatile uncertain complex and ambiguous we live you know, VUCA on steroids, <laughs> particularly. Yeah, it's just like part of life, pandemic. really. I yeah. mean. Yeah. So leaders need to be able to navigate those conditions and we're not taught how to navigate complexity. Mm. So that's my spiel. Yeah, um, I I agree with you. And I wonder whether, you know, with this shifting in sort of the, the macro system in terms of, you know, business capacity to influence, people do have a lot of expectations of the government, I think, in terms of their life. And because democracy is in a really strange place right now, in, in certainly in our country and many other countries, the capacity to influence and drive those outcomes is much more limited than it has been in a really long time. And at the same time, you know, I sort of think I'm like you, I'm I'm a little bit torn because I'm like, should business have that much power, you know, in the in the kind of the ideal world or but the reality is they actually just do. Yeah. And to yeah. say that they don't is, I don't know, we're just kidding ourselves, really, aren't we? Yeah. I think it also speaks to, you know, one of the sort of mega skills that um, I help leaders um, 
practice and get better at is that of collaborative capacity. And that's yeah. not that's not all feeling jolly, jolly, nice, nice. Mm. It's actually essential to get through complexity because business can't do it on its own. Government can't do it on its own. We need to ramp up the ability to truly collaborate, for for all perspectives to be heard. That doesn't mean that we act on all perspectives. And this is where this stuff, I think, gets quite sophisticated. So at at a kind of, you know, foundational level, we need leaders who are better at inquiring into perspectives, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We need leaders who are better at standing in the shoes of others, taking those perspectives, and we need leaders who are better at sharing those perspectives in a way that the rest of the team or the organisation can get. But that's not enough. Leaders then need to be able to discern, once they've heard them, stepped in the shoes, shared them, discern which of those perspectives are important for this decision as yeah. an example. Yeah. And where that decision sits on the autocratic full collaboration continuum, to be able to discern those perspectives and then coordinate those perspectives, involve the relevant perspectives in terms of the optimum decision. And that's that's quite sophisticated. It's very sophisticated. Skill. It's a very you know, sophisticated skill. I was I was listening to a podcast um quite a while ago, but that really stayed with me. And you, you know, you mentioned um democracy and stuff like that. And these people were saying that we need um, a new form of democracy because it's not kind of working. Mm. And it links to to what I was just saying. And the the idea is that we um, recruit um, a body of people, say 150, 100, 150, that are a true representation of Australian society because most of our MPs are not a rep- they're not a true representation mm. of society. Most of them are private school boys and girls. There's some exceptions to that, but there's kind of like right at the other end, you know, it's not it's not um, a cross-section of the community. So you get a bunch of people that you could call the cabinet of deliberation or something. Mm. Um, you get you 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 treat them a bit like a jury. So you give them enough information on both sides of the case or the policy in a way that the common man or woman can understand. You give them some expert facilitation. You give them enough time. And most of the time, people, like in a jury, come up with um, the optimum decision. Not always, but it's a lot better than the system that we have. Yeah. Or politics, which is so short-term, is making decisions without really hearing the voice of the people, I think. Yeah. No, I agree with you. And yeah, and very short term. There's no kind of like there's well, there's no systemic capacity to think about the very long range impact of our decisions. But also, there's like a I always call it dynamic steering. Like there's a yes. dynamic steering capacity that's required when you're working through complex decisions because there's feedback loops all the time yeah. coming in, coming out, and that is so key to to be able to learn how to do it and it's kind of like you know riding your bike you're always is a dynamic steering process because you're always looking for the dog running across the road or you know the unexpected stuff and I think you know for years in organizations when we did strategy work we would like set the strategy here's what we're doing and we'd stick to the plan and that just doesn't really work anymore because it's because of this dynamism that's required as we're going along yeah, and you have and, to be a lot it, more iterative about iterative decision making. Yeah, that's yeah. another really important skill that leaders need, as well as that. You know, thinking about the long term. I remember reading about the um, the Iroquois Indians 
whose primary, when doing strategic thinking, the question that they would ask is, what's in the best interests of the next seven generations? Yes. And if we had CEOs and executive teams asking that question, that could change a whole lot of stuff. You know, what's the legacy that I want to leave? Rather than maximising my short-term incentive or my, you know, what's the legacy that I want to leave and what's in the best interests of the next seven generations? Yeah. Coming through this organisation, some of whom could be my grandkids. Have you read um, Zantor, Tyson Yonker Porter's book? No. Oh, you should read it. It's from an Indigenous perspective. The other book that um, I've been reading is Braiding Sweetgrass, um, and that's Robin, I've forgotten her last name, but that's looking Braiding at... Sweetgrass. What a yeah. gorgeous title. Yeah, it's really beautiful. But, you know, in, in like looking at it from an... Um, Native American perspective, but in both examples, so one where you're talking about in, the Indigenous Australian culture and one, you know, the Native Americans, it's the same concept. It's all about the community and what does the community, what's in the best interests of the community first as a collective and um, the generations to come. And it's just not a way that is embedded in um, white colonial culture, is yes. it? Yes. Or, you know, or organisational said, design, you know, Western cultures. Yeah. You know, you said before about strategy, we need to, you know, once we said it, we need to be open to iterative decision-making and mm-hmm. change it this way and change it. And I absolutely agree with you. And for me, what sits above strategy and what guides strategy is um, organisational purpose. Yeah. Um, and my experience of that is a lot of people don't really understand it. They mix it up with vision and yes. mission. Yeah. Um, and purpose is very, very different. It's why the entity, and I say entity because it applies to individuals, teams, and organizations, it's why the entity exists. And why the organization exists, the answer to that is already there. The act of um, articulating a purpose is an act of revelation, mm. unlike strategy, which is an act of creation. So mm. we decide as the executive what we want this organisation to look like in five, ten years. Mm. But purpose already exists. So the 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 task is to uncover it, is to reveal it rather than make it up. Yeah. When you do, that changes everything. Yeah. I, you've just brought up a memory for me when I worked in banking, um, one of the strategy guys used to come in and do a talk for the graduates mostly, but he would always um, bring it back to the Medici's in the Renaissance because they really invented the modern banking system. And he's like, well, you know, it's all about buying and selling and lending money and um, earning money. Like that's the system is about moving it around and just simply by bringing it back to the origins of where it started uh, and then we, you know, you'd see all the grads be like the light would turn on. They're like, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's really what it's about, right? Like lending, taking the deposits in, so then you know people can earn a bit of interest, and then we can lend more money, right? So people can acquire and buy the things they want, and then we like keep their money, and then they earn some interest for letting us keep their money, and you know that's the contract, that's the deal, that's what it's all about, and then you know. Banking has just got so phenomenally complex with all the different products over the year. Mm. And I, I imagine this is for most organisations. We lose sight of that. 
and it morphs and changes and yeah it's so it's so interesting that example that you gave kelly like i think that there's another layer because i've done this work so often yeah lending and borrowing money is what we do as a bank yeah yeah yeah. why is that important why do we do that there's something else and the thing about purpose again that a lot of people don't really understand is that if you can measure it it's not a purpose yeah another layer there's something else you've got to good dig deeper into. So, you know, often when I work with organisations, we start with that. What do you do? Lend, borrow money, um, make something, do something, do this, do that. And then through a series of, um, you know, a guided discussion, we we dig deeper and find out why is that important to you? Why do you do that? And through that series of questions, we end up landing at something and it's it's a messy process, right? So it's not not sort of linear. And I never know what an organization's purpose is, but I can start to feel it when they get closer. I can yeah. feel it in my body. Yeah. You know, you do so much work in somatic area. Yeah, it yeah. resonates. And it's a it's a like a sinking in feeling to it when you get to it, yeah. or it's a high five kind of feeling. It's yeah. so resonant with people. And why do we want to do that? If you know the um there's some, you know big profitable organisations out there listening to this because articulating the organisational purpose has the single biggest impact on employee engagement and therefore profit and therefore results. You're right. yeah. it's not the, I mean, I um, feel like it's so much easier for not-for-profits to, to yeah. anchor into their purpose and people align with that. Whereas yeah. I think with for-profit businesses, it, it becomes increasingly difficult. Um, but not impossible. Like I'll give Not you, impossible. I'll give you an not example. impossible. Yeah, I worked with um, a major Australian financial institution some years ago and I was working with the division that did life insurance, right? Yeah. That is not the sexy part of wealth management. They were no. the poor dog cousins, you know, scrabbling for every bit of market share. Anyway, I did a strategic retreat with the GM and uh, his, you know, 10 or so direct reports and we did some work on purpose um, in exactly the way that that I've been describing and the conversation was absolutely fascinating. Where they landed as an executive, it was something like our purpose is to alleviate unnecessary hardship for all Australians. Now, the conversation they had around that was kind of more important than that statement. And what they talked about was when you are standing by the graveside of your loved one, the yeah. last thing you want to be thinking about is how you're going to pay for this. Yeah, And so it fundamentally shifted everything. For example, their marketing campaign shifted. So instead of ads that were all about buy from us, buy from us because we're better than the competitors, it was they hardly mentioned their brand name. Um, it was all Australians, you need this. We don't care whether you get it from us or the competitor over yeah, there. Yeah, it became more we educational. Don't want anyone to yeah. be to go through unnecessary hardship or suffering. And was that good for business? Of course it was good for business. These two things aren't mutually exclusive. Um, so, you know, it doesn't, it can be found because every entity does have a unique purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, so it is easier with not-for-profits because what they do is, you know, is for the good of the world. But, you know, I, one of my major clients is a salt manufacturer. Um, on mostly has got the major market share on the eastern seaboard and their purpose is something like we we are entrusted to supply the world's most essential mineral that enhances 
everybody's life every day, something like that. I won't have that. Yeah, nice. And that's the truth. Salt is the world's most essential mineral. It the really world is. stops without salt. So you can imagine what that did for that organisation during COVID. A lot of organisations' culture became, if it was mediocre, became toxic. Yeah. They just shone through it. They had people going above and beyond the call of duty, guys whose job it is day in, day out to bag salt, just doing extraordinary things because they knew that they had to keep producing salt. Yeah, yeah, and that is the thing that that aligns people. You're right, because it becomes sort of the thing that anchors them, isn't it? Like it keeps that containment or stability in the organisational cultural system. Yes, yes. In in SE we talk about containment, you know, yeah. in the body and creating space and letting the body be able to like be with the charge that it's feeling and moving through. And I feel like the purpose piece does that for organisations. Yeah, like it gives that yeah. sort of spaciousness but also that yeah. containment for them to be able to orient around it and move yes. around it and just like, oh, and always sort of anchor back to that. Why am I here? What are we doing? Yeah. Yeah. And that's why purpose and values have, you know, that that's the thing that tips organisations from an enduring um, point of view. And I'm thinking about the built to last research that came out of Collins and Porras, the differentiator between organisations that endure over the long term and have extraordinary levels of profitability and are places that people want to work and are places that customers love, that suppliers love, all that kind of stuff that communities love are those that are unwavering in their alignment to purpose and values. So purpose yeah. being the why and values being the, the how we how we are. Yeah. And it's not just laminated. It's absolutely lived. They make recruiting decisions by it. They make development decisions by it. They develop people through purpose and values and they exit people based on purpose and values. Yeah. And they, make, they make no bones about that. Yeah. Mm. Super important. Yeah. What do you think stops us from from growing and developing as adults? I mean, one of the one of the reasons that I sort of pursued the to go down the somatic experiencing path is when I was working heavily around um, the adult development space. I, I saw trauma, like I saw mm-hmm. it coming up, and to me, it was like, oh, it's. I think I said to you once, it's like a scratch in the record, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 I was so fascinated by it and, you know, it's just my nature to go down a ferret hole and try and really understand stuff. And so then when I got down it, I realised, you know, for myself how amazing it was. But there are, what do you, what do you think, what is, well, it's not, I don't think it's one thing. There are many things that, that stop us from growing, developing, and it's so easy to get stuck. Mm-hmm. Um and one thing, a lot of my clients, because I did, used to do a bit of couples coaching and a lot of women, and I don't want this to be like a man-woman thing, but a lot of women would get stuck or frustrated with their male, this is in hetero relationships, their male partners because they didn't want to do the development work or they didn't want to be in the space or they didn't feel comfortable and this is just not people that came to me. I, like, hear this all the time from colleagues. And I think, you know, I'm always curious. And I'm like, well, what is it that really... So I think, you know, midlife's super powerful for a lot of women because it is often the thing that encourages them to go and do some deep work 
right? It's yeah. It is has a way of exposing our vulnerabilities. And then I think of all the guys I've coached over the years, many because, and also you know, because I worked in executive development for a long time, and organisations are predominantly male at the top. But what I would often see, often in their late forties, early fifties, with a lot of guys, was, and I'm just piggybacking off our last conversation, quitting their job, taking leave of absence, doing. I want more purpose and meaning in my life. Mm. And, you know, for me, I'm sort of gone very deeply. I've read very deeply about this. I've looked at it from many different kind of angles and perspectives. And so where I've come to is it is a normal part of our midlife transition to move from our first adulthood, which is very driven by ego and is all about establishing ourselves, whether it's in our career or getting a house, getting a car, it's very outside in. And then we go through midlife and it's very much coming, you know, connecting with our, our soul mm. and um, be to be able to be yourself, right? Yeah. So, you know, we talk about our individual purpose. From my perspective, I believe that your purpose is to, to learn to be yourself. Mm. And, you know, if your work supports you to be that person, fantastic, or your Work is an important part of your life and maybe it's your hobby, like you talked about gardening yeah. and bushwalking and all those things before. And so I always think, wow, what what is it? What are the things that stop us from wanting to explore that? Because, because you know, and I think midlife transition is so important to help us to move into elderhood. And the world so needs its elders at the yes. moment, its wise yes. people, and that we don't we don't necessarily become an elder by aging. You know, we can <laughs> get very stuck developmentally. Yes. Um, and one of my teachers, Francis Weller, he says, you know, the role of the elder is to hold the community in, in grief but also to sort of work with younger generations. Mm. So I'm, I'm so always so curious about this and I sort of stand back and watch and observe and I know it's a very individual thing, but what, what have you, like, you know, you've worked in the business world for a really long time and you've been working with senior leaders for a really long time and you've got just such incredible depth of expertise here. So if you were to reflect on your experiences and observations, what, what are some of the things you've seen, Jeff? If I was to boil it down, I think it is um, two things. The the lack of a North Star in terms of purpose and values, because if you don't do that, you just kind of end up treading water. Yeah. And having something like your purpose and values as your North Star against which you make big strategic decisions, how do you know whether to go this way or that way? if you yeah. don't know what the North Star is, you know, mm-hmm. so you just let the waves of life sort of, you know, bash you about. Um, in terms of the stuff that I've been immersed in for the last seven years or so, um, you know, your question was what stops us growing and developing? And I'm, um, I think it is learning trauma, mm-hmm. which is different to the kind of trauma that you've been talking about, which I think is equally as valid, but it's not my space, right? So mm-hmm. I'm not qualified to really talk about that. But for me, learning trauma occurs to us through the education system. Yeah. If you think about little kids when they're four and five year old, four and five years old, 
and they come into the system full of like curiosity and wonder and excitement. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, schools in those early years do a reasonable job of maintaining that. But there comes a point when the kids apparently have to learn that two times two equals four, yeah. four times four equals 16, and they have to memorise that. Mm. And that is the antithesis to the brain's natural learning cycle, which is the same cycle as addiction, interestingly enough. Yeah. It's the dopamine Definitely. opioid cycle. And it's where, you know, when kids are babies learning to walk, you can you can see I it. Love it. That, that, you know, striving for the next little leap up that they can make, holding onto the chair leg, lifting themselves up, falling back down, lifting themselves up, falling back down. I love it. Dopamine, opioid, again and again and again. And it's micro practice and it's the smallest skill that they can get hold of and they do it again and again and again and again. Yeah. The school system squishes all that out of us. Yeah. Um, and so by the time we get to adulthood, I think, you know, my my mentor in this area is a woman called Dr. Theo Dawson, who heads up Lectica. She would say that our brains are damaged by the time yeah. we get to adulthood, to a greater or lesser extent. And we have forgotten how to engage in true learning. And because of that, you know, what I see when people come into, you know, leadership development programs that I run and, like, say I haven't met them, a lot of them come into the room either literally or figuratively, you know, with their arms crossed and rolling their eyes going, you know, yes. what sort of bullshit is this? Yes. I think that's fear and I think it's based on on learning trauma Yeah, because they have been punished by needing to come up with answers that are right or wrong. Yeah, and The world isn't black and white, so that's just nonsensical to teach yes. them that. Um, and punished by getting a good grade or rewarded by a high grade um, and to get those grades, you have to memorise a lot of stuff. You know, um, Theo Dawson's um, mentor is a guy called Kurt, Kurt Fisher, and he's in the lineage of um, Baldwin, Piaget, Colbert, Vygotsky, um, Commons, Dawson, Fisher. There's this lineage of absolute... Developmental psychologists. Who yeah. are geniuses, right? Yeah. Absolute geniuses. He said, and this is based on the states, that the school system there really only suits about 20% of the kids. And I think it was relating to primary school years because of what he said, that the kids who do really well in primary school are those that have average or maybe slightly above average intelligence. It's not about IQ. Yeah. What they have that differentiates them, which is really sad, is a higher tolerance for sitting still. Now, I've extrapolated yeah. that to secondary I, school. Yeah. You know, my son's now in year 12, and the kids that are going to do really well in their ATAR, the 98, you know, 99 ATARs, are those kids, similarly, who have an average or slightly above average intelligence. They're not necessarily the high IQ kids. They have a higher tolerance for memorising stuff that they know is useless. Bullshit. Now I'm exaggerating a little bit. <laughs> you know, my son is saying that he's just going to do exam paper because there's some concepts in economics that he doesn't really get. Yes. And, you know, he's got great teachers and maybe that's part my stuff, part his stuff. But anyway, he's at the pointy end now and he said, I'm just going to do as many exam papers as I can and hope that they're the ones that come up that I can regurgitate stuff in. And a week after that exam is finished, he will have forgotten it, if not the very same day. Like, yeah. it's just... That's almost criminal. Yeah. So um, 
I know that we can re-engage our brains to learn the way that they were designed to learn. We we can't grow more brain cells by the time we're, you know, 30, but we can um, grow what neuroscientists are calling the connectome, and that's the number of connections between brain cells. That is infinite, mm. and we need to relearn how to do that mm. by re-engaging the dopamine opioid cycle by setting tiny little skill goals, you know, finding out something about that skill, applying it, then reflecting on it. It's not rocket science, but that's the only thing that's going to make those neural connections. Yeah. I'm just reflecting on my last podcast with Ma- with Moira. We were talking about the inner child mm-hmm. and she was talking about she used to teach kids. She did a lot of parenting classes and she used to t- teach kids swimming. And she mm-hmm. said the parents, you know, like letting those kids she had like a floaty move from one float to the next and she said they were like 12, 18 months old and they'd crawl across and then they'd jump onto the next one and then they'd be cheering for themselves, yay, and letting them, like saying to the parents, just let them do it. Let them learn. It builds their self-esteem, their confidence. They're learning a new skill. Mm. And she said, you know, the the look on these little babies' faces Mm. was just, priceless yeah you know I've like I've experienced that myself in in this work that I've been um you know delving into around adult development is that you know I remember doing one and it was an assignment so I did have to write some stuff but I was so engaged in the process like my bedtime is 10 o'clock these days I was up to one o'clock I couldn't help myself yeah I just wanted more 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 yeah yeah and these are skills that are learnable and skill by its very definition is something that you need to practice. You never get to be a superstar tennis player and say, all right, I'm done now. I don't need to practice anymore. And so leaders need to be able to do these practices on a daily basis and start getting those. It's the same for everything. It's the same in sexuality work. It's the same in nervous system regulation. It's practice, 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 microdose, microdose, microdose. Yeah, microdose. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Hey, Deb, thanks so much for the conversation today. That's gone so quickly. I sure has. Really I'm going to put your um, website in the show notes. Thank you. And yeah, if you want to get in, if you're listening and you want to get in contact with Deb, all her details will be in there. But thank you so much. It was such a fabulous conversation. And I think people will have learned so much by listening oh, to you. Thank you, Kelly. I'm so glad we connected and there'll be more of these conversations. There will. No doubt. <laughs> See you. Bye.